Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're taking a look at Tunnels of Fear, the 1992 Battle Quest book by Stephen Thraves, with illustrations by Terry Oakes, published by Hodder and Stoughton. Before we get into the meat of the episode, there's a little housekeeping to attend to. Firstly, it's my pleasant duty to thank Stuart for increasing his pledge over on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thanks to his generosity and the generosity of all my backers on Patreon, we're going to be doing a bonus episode every month in 2023. Thanks very much, Stuart. Your support is deeply appreciated. I have already started work on some additional patron rewards for this year. I've got some very fun things planned, and I might even have some additional information at the end of this episode. Speaking of things what I done wrote, last year I created an experimental role-playing game called Percentage Killbot, which all my patrons have already received. It was written to be included in a zine, and I'm delighted to say that zine is now out over at DriveThruRPG. It's called Sights Unzine, Returning Home from the War, and there's a bunch of articles written by a whole host of talented people from various different spheres, all tackling the theme of soldiers coming back from the front in one way or another. It was a lovely project to be part of, and if you'd like a copy, there'll be a link in the show notes. With the notices out of the way, we can turn our attention to Tunnels of Fear, and what an oddity this is. It's not my usual practice to start with the publisher, but Hodder and Stoughton had carved out a strange little niche in the adventure gamebook sphere, and it does bear talking about. Their gamebooks were generally notable for two reasons. The first being that they typically came with a bunch of peripherals with which to play the game. Most of their games had special dice and various card and plastic overlays which the book would direct you to use at various points. This made the books feel a bit more special, but inevitably a collection of cardboard and plastic add-ons would be lost by children almost immediately on receiving the pack, making complete sets really quite hard to get hold of. My copy of Tunnels of Fear is missing one of the transparent overlays, one bit of cardboard and both of the dice. I'll talk a bit more about how I'm going to deal with this once we get started with the playthrough proper. The second interesting feature of the Hodder and Stouting gamebooks is that they had a number of licensed titles, which are all a little bit off-piste. For example, they did a whole bunch of Famous Five books, which I do remember playing a couple of and quite enjoying as a youngster. They did uh, two Asterix the Gore books, a character utterly beloved in Europe, but I gather largely unknown in the US. Uh, and they also did a couple of Biggles books based on the World War I fighter pilot whose adventures focused on pluck and determination and not on a brutal conflict that left millions dead, largely so Europe's ruling elite could try and fail to stem the rising tide of socialist feeling. So they're a kind of fascinating publisher in the space and one that doesn't get talked about, as far as I can tell, all that often. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they handled a more traditional fantasy adventure like the one we've got here. Tunnels of Fear on the uh, front cover says it is the ultimate, all in capitals, role-playing fantasy with combat dice and complete kit. Stephen Thraves himself seems to be something of a forgotten creator, but it's worth mentioning that he single-handedly wrote every adventure game book that Hodder and Stoughton ever put out. 
a resume totaling 36 books, which is frankly insane. Along with this, he wrote numerous other children's books and a children's TV show from the early 2000s that I've never heard of called Fetch the Vet, which is most notable for featuring disgraced children's TV personality Rolf Harris in season two. Can't imagine that's going to be rerunning anytime soon. Information on Thraves is extremely limited, but them's the breaks. It's a salutary reminder that more writers will be forgotten than will ever be remembered. The illustrator Terry Oakes is somewhat better known, having contributed cover art to a number of fighting fantasy books and interior illustrations to a few. He did the cover for Slaves of the Abyss, which is the next fighting fantasy book we'll be playing, so that's a nice bit of synchronicity. I think that's enough background to be going on with, let's have a chat about the mechanics of playing this game. Starting with what we should have to accompany this book. The first thing is a strength rating dial, which is simply a way of recording your current strength. It starts at 6 and can go up or down based on combat and so forth. If it hits 0, then it is game over. There's also a treasure dial, which you can use to track how many treasures you have found. There are a total of eight, and I've said before that I like having a way of keeping score in adventure game books. I think it adds to the replayability. Both of these are present and correct in my set, which is mildly irritating, if only because if there was going to be anything missing, one of the ones that you could easily replace by writing a number down on a sheet of paper would be the ones to lose. But hey, I've got them. That's nice. There's also two transparent overlays which represent different spells, foresight and trance. They are opaque shapes with a small number of clear windows in them. You put these over the relevant letter clouds which you are presented in the text and they allow you to decode a message by looking at the letters visible through the clear sections. I have the foresight one, but not the trance one. The spells are probably the most difficult thing to replicate, so that's annoying, but at least I've got one of them, that's something. I sort of know where the holes are on the second because I've seen a photo of the layout of that overlay, so it's possible I might be able to work something out. There's also two clue cards which give you the solutions to a couple of different ciphers. I've only got one, but by squinting at the back cover I can make out the entries on the second, so that's basically fine. Finally, there's two dice which are used for fighting monsters, a monster dice and a hero dice. I don't have either of these, but I think I can reverse engineer them from the combat chart. The monster dice has two different symbols, one showing a monster face, one showing a sword. The hero dice has three symbols, a face, a sword and a shield. You roll both dice at once, and to damage the monster you must roll a sword and the monster must roll a face. If the monster rolls a sword and you roll a face, then you've been damaged and must immediately run away, much like me in an actual fight. If you roll a shield, then basically nothing happens, regardless of what the monster rolls. Now, there's six different possible outcomes on the combat chart. If you assume the simplest version of the dice, with the monster dice having three faces and three swords, that gives you a 1 in 2 chance of the monster landing a hit. If you do the same for the hero dice and assume an equal distribution of two swords, two shields and two faces, that gives you a 1 in 3 chance of rolling a face. So 1 over 2 times 1 over 3 gives 1 over 6 for the monster to win each round. That feels fair, particularly given that it's only got to hit once, you don't want the monster hitting too often. 
Of course, with only two sword faces for the hero and three faces for the monster, the chances of the hero scoring a hit by this rubric is also 1 over 3 times 1 over 2, giving an identical 1 over 6 chance to wound the monster, which means that two thirds of the time literally nothing happens. That feels wrong to me, so I'm going to hack the rules I've just hallucinated from a table of outcomes. I'm getting rid of the shield entirely, it brings nothing to the game except more nothing happens results. I'm going to replace it with two additional sword faces. That gives a 1 over 2 times 2 over 3 chance for the hero to score a hit, which works out to 1 over 3. Combat is still going to be a grind, and the one hit defeat is going to suck, but at least our plucky warrior has a chance of killing a bigger monster before both of them pass out from exhaustion and ennui. Okay, with that lengthy preamble out of the way, I think it's time to dive into the adventure. Let's delve into the Tunnels of Fear. I am all ready to go. My strength rating has been set to the starting value of six. My treasure counter has been set to the starting value of zero. Let's do the background. Your voyage was safe, I trust, a man in purple robes says, greeting you as you step from the small galley that carried you all those miles. I am Yuvain, Queen Tarsha's chief advisor. I know your journey was long, but Queen Tarsha requests your presence at her castle immediately. That is how urgent our plight is. Please, step into my chariot. The chariot's four horses convey you both at breakneck speed. You vain servant liberal with the whip. You are soon approaching the drawbridge of the royal castle. Open, fools! You vain yells at the drawbridge guards. My guest is to see our queen without delay. Surrounded by her officials, Queen Tarsha is waiting for you on the other side of the drawbridge in the castle's large courtyard. She is sitting on a stone throne which is strewn with the skins of wild animals. She rises as you approach. Can you save us, barbarian hero? She asks in an imperial voice as you go down on bended knee before her. See, that's got my back up already. No one should kneel before royalty. They're not special. Can you save our prosperous and happy kingdom? You are our last hope. The legend that reached your country was true. Queen Tarsha has a beauty that knows no equal. But you respectfully keep your eyes lowered, holding yourself too humble to admire that beauty further. And also, just openly staring at a woman's assets. It's just creepy. You perhaps don't believe, barbarian, that this was once a very prosperous land. Her aloof voice continues. You doubtless witnessed all the beggars on your short ride through my kingdom, all the disease that now afflicts my people. You doubtless noticed that the robes of my courtiers here look threadbare and ragged. But I assure you that not long ago we were a kingdom of immense wealth, provided by the large diamond mine in the north of my land, probably the richest source of diamonds ever discovered. Nothing like a nation's wealth that's based on an object in a medieval-esque context, almost totally without intrinsic value. So that was another legend about this land that was founded on truth. But she was right. You had found this rumour of great wealth very hard to believe during your long journey from harbour to castle. All you could see from the chief advisor's chariot was poverty and neglect. There is a picture of our... Barbarian 
kneeling before the Queen. I'm not at all sure how I feel about Terry Oak's internal art. I generally quite like his covers, but he has a very distinctive way of using hatching that I think works on some elements in the scene and not others. It looks pretty good on the castle wall that's behind the Queen on her throne, and it's quite nice on the robes of her advisors, but on the barbarian's skin, it just looks a bit like he's got some kind of disease. So I'm not, not sure about that at all. There's some nice details of like the castle walls being quite crumbly, and the stone chair is missing some details that have clearly fallen off. So in conceptual terms, I think it's great, but I'm just not entirely sure about how the style portrays more sort of biological features. You must be intrigued to know the cause of this sudden reversal of fortune, she says, her voice starting to lose some of its regal composure. Anger is creeping in. Bitterness. Drexen! He was the cause. He is the ruler of the kingdom just beyond the diamond mine, on the other side of the mountains. His envious eyes have long looked towards our prosperous lands. Some years back he asked for my hand in marriage. But I knew the real purpose of his proposal, of course. It was not my heart he wanted by the alliance, but my diamond mine. I like the idea that this is in some way, shape or form, scandalous when most marriages in pre-modern society of the nobility were contracted largely on the basis of economic interest. When I refused him, she continues, he swore devastating revenge on me and my kingdom. Not only was his greed thwarted, but his pride was stung as well. Eyes still to the ground, you wait to hear the nature of this revenge. But it's a while before Queen Tasha can go on. It's as if she won't speak until she can remove the emotion from her voice, until she can restore her regal dignity. With the threat of public and gruesome execution, she explains coldly and matter-of-factly, Draxon ordered his chief sorcerer, Murgle, to cast a hideous spell on the diamond mine. He was to fill it with vicious demons and monsters, so that my miners would be terrified to work it any more. Needless to say, the cowardly sorcerer obeyed his master's instructions. Every twist and tunnel of the mine now echoes with one of his monstrous creations. So we still have the diamonds there, she concludes, but no one brave enough to mine them. My kingdom, therefore, no longer has anything to trade for food and clothing. My people go half-naked. They starve. That is the curse Murgle has put on us. That is how Draxon has wrecked his evil revenge. This smacks of obscene economic mismanagement. The reliance on a single trade good for literally the entire infrastructure of her kingdom. I mean, I know there's, there's states that do much the same in the real world, but they're usually trading something like oil that the planet has a seemingly bottomless appetite for. I do feel as though maybe someone should have planted some potatoes and grown some hemp or something rather than just sitting there going, 
how our diamond mine will continue to fund literally everything we could ever want. You next feel the touch of her hand on your shoulder. She orders you to rise. I say again, she states, allowing you to look directly at her. You are our last hope. I ask you to go down into the mine yourself and rescue those diamonds, as many as you can. If you agree, I and my people will be eternally indebted to you. If you refuse, or your quest fails, my kingdom is surely doomed. So, nice, simple plot. Go into a mine, find some diamonds. I can think of lots of fun encounters you could have in a mine. Kind of hoping we're going to get some Donkey Kong country-esque minecart action, but that might be me jumping the gun a bit. It's fine. I don't think it's the best written thing I've ever read. Uh, tendency to introduce things in a slightly strange order, but more than serviceable. So uh, we now go on to the uh, quest instructions, uh, which we've covered more or less. So let us begin. Come, it is time for us to go, Yvain tells you, after you have been allowed a few hours rest in the castle. He lets you quickly finish your goblet of mead before escorting you back to his chariot. I will transport you to within a few miles of the diamond mine, he says as his servant cracks his whip over a fresh team of horses. But the very last part of the journey you must make on foot. It's there that the mountains start to rise and the terrain is treacherous. As the horses snort and pound in front of you, their flowing white manes sleet in the wind, you again observe all the poverty and decay that has taken over this land. There's mile upon mile of this depressing sight, but at last, after some three hours in the chariot, the grey-blue silhouette of the mountains starts slowly to rise on the horizon. Yvain stops his chariot much sooner than you were expecting, for although the rough road now begins to climb, climb is still gentle. It makes you wonder whether the chief adviser has another reason for not wishing to take you any further. Fear. You will find the entrance to the mine about an hour's walk from here, he tells you, then quickly orders his chariot to be turned around. Good luck. I hope for both our sakes that you succeed. As you are left alone there on the mountain road, you wonder whether you should start your walk towards the mine immediately or rest for a while after your long, uncomfortable journey. So we are in classic role-playing game territory with a overland journey through the wilderness to get to a dungeon at the end. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's a classic for a reason. Um, but in terms of decisions, do we want to set off immediately or rest? Well, I'm already at maximum strength. I literally have no equipment other than my sword. I don't think anything is actually going to be functionally gained by resting, even though that's the sort of roleplay answer. So I'm going to set off immediately. The mountains come nearer and nearer as you follow the rough road, your climb gradually growing steeper and steeper. Finally, as the road turns a sharp corner, you spot a large village ahead. It looks as if it were once thriving, but now seems almost completely abandoned, an eerie silence hanging over the place. If you did not know otherwise, you would guess that it had been struck by plague, but perhaps in a sense it had been, the plague of Draxon's evil. Just behind the village is a sheer crag with a huge man-made hole at its base. That can only be one thing, the thing the village was so dependent on, 
the diamond mine. Okay, so it's a very short overland trip and we don't get to make any decision. We just get punted to the next section. One or two despairing faces stare at you as you walk through the village, but most of the houses are empty, their doorways and windows filled with silent shadows. You pass a dry village pump, a dusty abandoned marketplace. Starving dogs whine amongst the decaying stalls, searching hopelessly for scraps of food. You're about to toss them a crust of bread from your haversack when you spot a far more deserving recipient, small child in rags. His eyes are cavernous, distrusting, his body diseased. Unable to bear much more of this, you hurry to the far side of the village where a short snaking track leads to the sheer crag and the entrance to the diamond mine. And once again, we have no choice. We get punted straight to the next section. Nice bit of local colour, though. Um, yeah, quite a uh, vivid description of the uh, small child. Tugs at the old heartstrings. It does. As you peer into this huge man-made hole, into the hollow darkness within, you can't see anything of the fiends that are supposed to inhabit it. Nor can you hear anything. At the very least, you expect the occasional wail to echo towards you, but there's nothing. Just a strange, unnerving silence. Anxious, you enter that hollow darkness, glad to find that it is soon relieved by a trail of lamps. The lamps appear only occasionally, and their amber glow is by no means strong, but at least you can just about make out where you are going. For a while you walk in a horizontal line, the wide tunnel seeming no more than a shortcut through the crag. But then, after boring some 300 metres or so into the mountain, the tunnel suddenly terminates at a large cavern. So, in terms of our preparation for this adventure, underground, it didn't occur to us to bring any sort of light source, which seems like a severe oversight. I've played enough Minecraft that the urge to just start whacking whatever there is in front of me with a stone pickaxe is going to be broadly overwhelming. You realise that your route is now downwards, for there is a huge squarish hole in the floor of the cavern. Set into the north and south sides of this hole are a series of iron rungs. These two series of rungs were obviously the means by which the mine workers descended into the hole, and you prepare to climb down one side yourself. Which will you choose? So, if you have acquired the power of foresight during your adventure so far, you may employ it here to find out whether you should avoid one series of rungs. To do this, place the foresight power card exactly over the eye shape below. So we've got the eye shape below, covered in a sea of letters, and if I were to place my foresight card over it, only some of them would be visible. I'm assuming then that resting before heading off is all you need to do to get the power of foresight, or at least to open the area of the book where the power of foresight can be found, because I literally haven't made a single choice since that one. So, uh, rungs on the north or rungs on the south. Now I can literally see the word south in the word cloud. Uh, so I'm going to choose the south because I did manage to, I think, truffle that out just by gazing dyslexically at the word cloud. 
as you start to climb down the series of rungs, you realise how busy the mine must once have been. The rungs are very shiny, worn from frequent use. You wonder how many miners climbed up and down them per day. Fifty? A hundred? And that was just this series of rungs, of course. There would have been the same number of men using those on the other side of the hole. Because the rungs are so shiny, you are very careful as you lower yourself from one to the other. What makes your task even more difficult is that there are no lamps on the way down. You only hope that the trail of lamps starts again as soon as you reach the bottom of the shaft. But when will you reach the bottom? The rungs seem to go on forever. You have counted more than 400 now. At last, though, your lower foot touches firm ground. And again, we're being bounced straight to another section. I do think failing to spot that a good plan might have been to nick one of the many lamps for my own personal use is a black mark against the author. Pretty basic stuff. Leading away from the bottom of the shaft is a horizontal tunnel, and you assume that this is the start of the diamond mine. The shaft was just to get the workers down to this mine, and the large cavern above the shaft was probably a collection area, where workers handed over their finds to be graded. You had noticed several rusty pairs of scales up there and an assortment of sieves. Yes, it's only now that you can expect to come across the diamonds, and you eagerly follow this new tunnel relieved to see the trail of lamps start to guide you again. And again, we're being bounced straight to another section without so much as a by your leave. And again, the author has done a thing of, in this section, describing the previous section. That's not good writing. Like, if it comes to you that the area at the top would have been a good place to be a collection and grading area, go back to the description of that section and modify it to include rusty pairs of scales and an assortment of sieves. Don't add it into the next section. That's madness. It isn't very long before you spot your first diamond. You followed the tunnel for no more than a hundred metres when you pass the entrance to a wide but shallow cave on your right. You're not sure whether this cave has been created by man or nature, but sparkling in the rocky wall at the back of it, is the largest and most brilliant diamond you have ever seen. Even in this dim, shadowy light, it seems to shine like ice afire. You're just about to enter the cave, however, when you realise that the jewel has a guardian. Stepping out of the shadows to the diamond's left is the first of Draxon's terrible monsters. And inevitably we're being taken to another page. The creature is as grotesque as the diamond is beautiful. A huge, lumpy head rests snarling on a muscular body. The snarl is a mixture of fangs and small tusks, and two deep-set eyes glare with evil above them. Grasped in the fiend's hand is a razor-sharp sword. You realise that if you are going to make this diamond your own, you are going to have to challenge this horrendous creature. So do you think at times his prose is actually pretty good, and at times just bafflingly amateurish? There is a picture of the creature, small one, lovely use of negative space, mostly black with just the hint of the creature's outline visible in white. I like that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. We do get to make a choice, though. Do we want to fight it or do we want to avoid it? Well, we're here for the old diamonds, so we're going to fight it. 
So this creature is slain by eight wounds. Uh, wage combat by simultaneously throwing two dice. You slay the creature, one thing happens. If it inflicts a wound on us, deduct one from your strength rating and then flee well away from this region. do like the fact that combat, as far as I can tell, is pretty much never fatal, if I'm reading the rules right. That's something I'd be very tempted to explore as a design space in my next book a bit more. Yeah, I do like that idea. However, eight wounds, one in six chance to hit us. We're going to need to be pretty lucky to get through this. For the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I managed to reduce the massive creature to four wounds before it hit me. Uh, so we are fleeing from the creature with our strength rating now reduced to zero. I will say there's something quite nice about having everything you need to record your character sort of provided for you, although it does limit the design space considerably if you're not able to pick up items other than the two spells and the two ciphers. But it is still a kind of nice kind of quality of life thing if you're going to go down that that road um yeah i'm sort of a bit weirded out but i don't need to write anything down but i am quite enjoying it you forge deeper and deeper into the mountain the trail of lamps twisting dimly in front of you suddenly you stop the next section of the tunnel looks unstable its creaking roof showering occasional falls of dust and rock fragments. Each shower becomes slightly thicker, heavier, piling its dust and stones on the tunnel floor. Just in case this suddenly develops into a full-on rock fall, you wonder whether you should just stay where you are for a while. But maybe even where you are isn't completely safe, and you would do better to try and quickly pass through this section of the tunnel. I've got another chance to use foresight uh which obviously we don't have uh so wait or continue i'm going to continue let's go for bravery in this circumstance this cool little encounter i like this um again it's a bit minecraft going through a uh underground cavern and realizing that above you there's a, a whole bunch of gravel barely hanging onto the ceiling that could come and crush you at any moment. Yeah, this is a good encounter. Uh, yeah, but we're going to continue. Brave heart and all that. You dash through this section of the tunnel, hoping that the roof will hold for just a little longer. But the showers of flint and dust become more and more frequent, heavier and heavier. The creaking is now constant all around you, becoming an ominous groan. Suddenly, all the stresses and strains prove too much, and the roof explodes into an avalanche of rocks and boulders. Fortunately, you're just beyond the main part of the fall, but a flying rock strikes you on the back of the head. It leaves you feeling weak and dazed. We get to deduct one from our strength rating. Strength rating now four. Again, I think in a lot of game books that would have been an instant kill, as it is... There's a mindset here that it's just going to chip away at your strength rather than it killing you in one go. And again, I think that's actually a pretty good design decision as well. 
I think instant deaths should be part of game books, but I think many of them over-rely on it. To your relief, the tunnel soon becomes more secure again. As you proceed, the ominous creaking fades away and the showers of dust become finer and finer. Five hundred metres from the rock fall, the flames of the lamps burning on the walls are perfectly steady once more. But it's then that you notice a hazy apparition a short distance in front of you. An apparition so eerie, it freezes your blood. And again, no choice of where to go. The apparition seems to be the spectre of one of the former mine workers, for it carries the vague form of a pickaxe over its transparent shoulder. Suddenly it beckons you with a white, wispy finger. You quickly turn away from it, about to flee back in the direction you came from. But, to your horror, you notice another apparition hovering behind you. This one also seems to be a spectre of a past miner, and it too is beckoning you. You're clearly going to have to approach one of them, but which? So, um, choice of the spectre in front or the spectre behind? They've both beckoned me, but the spectre in front uh, beckoned us first. So, out of politeness, I'm going to deal with them in the order that they were introduced to me. So yeah, we'll go for the spectre in front. Turning round again, you gradually approach the spectre hovering in front of you. Your breathing slows almost to a stop as the hazy, beckoning finger comes nearer and nearer. You are at last within reach and you shudder as the finger stretches out towards you, pulling you closer. A whisper of a voice emerges from the whitish form, faintly moaning in your ear. I am the spectre of Gervel, an honest miner who used to toil down here, it wails. I was sent to my grave by one of Draxon's monsters. As you have come to defeat these monsters, I will try and help. You will see a wall to your left, three loose rocks, one above the other. Behind one is something that will greatly assist your quest. Be sure to choose with care. When one of the rocks has been eased out, the other two will blend back into the wall, becoming impossible to remove. Someone was writing this encounter and realised that there'd be nothing stopping you from just pulling all three rocks out of the wall. Um, yeah... I think whenever you do a ghost, you always end up doing a Jacob Marley voice out of one of the many versions of A, a Christmas Carol. Or I do, anyway. So he's trying to help by indicating the three magic rocks, but not helping in the sense of giving me any kind of clue. So lowest, middle, top. I mean, they're going to expect you to go for the middle. That's just a textbook red herring. Uh... And I think top is the next most obvious choice. So I'm going to go low. I think I think the idiots will go middle. Slightly brighter people will go top. And uh, the smart cookies like me, we're going to go lowest rock. You tensely ease out the lowest rock, your fingertips just able to secure a grip on it. There's a narrow but deep cavity behind it and you immediately insert your arm. To begin with, you are disappointed, but as your arm disappears right up to the shoulder, your fingers suddenly touch something of grained leather. It's the cover of a thick book. 
sliding the book out, you can see that it is very decayed. The page is crumbling and yellow. But you can just about make out the crude lettering on these pages for the strange drawings along the side. You assume these drawings to be various ciphers employed in the mine, and you therefore carefully place the book into your haversack. So we've got the book of ciphers, and there's a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different symbols, uh, which meanings are in order choose blue, choose yellow, choose green, choose red, choose white, choose left, choose right, choose middle, choose top, choose bottom. So uh, a thrilling range of meanings for those ciphers. And we're on to the next section. Like your cipher is less interesting than the cipher from Chasms of Malice. Hang your head in shame. You haven't walked much further along the tunnel when it suddenly broadens out into a huge cavern. The miners had obviously worked hard here, for there is a multitude of caves hacked into its sides. You therefore assume that this is an area particularly rich in diamonds. You immediately spot confirmation of this, for there's a brilliant gleam from the nearest cave. Lying atop a heap of fallen rocks on the cave floor is a magnificent sparkling diamond. But that is not all that gleams in the shadows of the cave. And again we go straight to the next section. There's also the lethal, curved gleam of a scimitar. A scimitar in the claws of a fanged monster. It's the most repulsive creature you've ever seen. Thick hair all over its body, but not so much as a strand on its head. It has only one eye in the centre of this head. An eye as bulbous as a frog's and laced with red veins. The grotesque eye leers at you, challenging you to try and come and take the diamond. It's a picture of the Cyclops. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Ah, uh, big old eye, blade of the scimitar, and just the biggest, cheeriest grin. Um, yeah, very nice. Very nice. He looks absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to do a murder. So do we wish to fight or avoid it? Well, we will fight, of course. We've still got four strength. This creature is slain by seven wounds. Well, goody goody. Another fight that is very unlikely to go my way. So with a sense of inevitable defeat, I'm gonna roll some dice. Could easily have done that on Mike as the monster hit me. First round of combat. So uh, I did no damage to the Cyclops and instead got hit and ran away. What a wonderful fantasy of being a barbarian this is. The seemingly endless tunnel that leads away from the cavern gradually becomes narrower and narrower, its roof lower and lower. The flickering glow of the lamps now bathes the entire width. The glares flicker right across the roof, spilling in and out of the cracks and crevices, and dance down the opposite walls. But then the tunnel starts to widen again, and the reach of the glow shortens. The light is quickly consumed by dark shadows once more. This much wider tunnel eventually divides into two smaller ones, one branching off to the left and one to the right. 
you know, it's a straight left-right decision. The first straight left-right decision, in fact, after recording for the best part of an hour. So we're going to go left. We always go left. Good old left. Left never steers you wrong. As you follow this left branch of the tunnel, you again find the walls narrowing in on you. Sometimes the distance between them is scarcely more than three metres and your head often grazes the tunnel roof. The intermittent glow of the lamps once more provides almost full illumination. But then, a short distance ahead, you notice an even brighter glow. Much brighter, in fact. Coming towards you, it's a fireball! You desperately run back down the tunnel to escape it, but the fireball hurtles closer and closer. You can soon feel its scorching heat on your back, a heat that quickly saps your strength. Any moment now, you're going to collapse on the ground before it. Deduct one from your strength rating and go to the next section. Strength rating now down to two. This is going super well. Where am I? What happened? You ask in confusion as your eyes focus on a sniggering goblin. His close-set features show that he takes great pleasure in your enfeebled state. You were chased by a fireball, that's what happened, he cackles. You should have seen yourself. You passed out right in front of it. It's lucky for you that the fireball suddenly stopped and started to roll backwards. There's a little picture of the goblin. It's just like a bloke, I'll be honest. just looks like a bloke with reasonably bad teeth. This book alleges to be 330 sections long. In reality, it is much, much less than that because the vast majority of sections just send you directly to another section. The goblin sniggers again as you try and get back on your feet. You're still very weak and fall back to the ground. If you like a risk, the goblin says, grinning somewhat maliciously, then you can perhaps restore the strength you lost. He takes out three small vials from the pocket of his shabby jerkin. One contains blue liquid, one yellow and one green. They all have the same strange symbol etched in the glass. One of these potions will restore some of your strength, the goblin explains, and one won't make the slightest bit of difference. As for the third, I'm afraid that will reduce your strength even further. So, I can consult my book of ciphers. Uh, choose blue. Wow. Most of the items seem to just make a whole bunch of different encounters trivial. So, uh, yeah, we'll go blue. The goblin grins again as you take the vial of blue potion from him and slowly remove the cork. He obviously wants you to hesitate and sweat over your choice, but you refuse to give him that pleasure. So you immediately down the liquid in one. The goblin's grin immediately turns into a snarl, not just because you didn't agonise over your choices, but because the choice was obviously the correct one. Or you can feel the strength rapidly returning to your limbs. The evil little creature flees before you are up on your feet again. So we can add one to our strength rating. Hey, hey, hey. Strength three. Still haven't found a, or successfully obtained, a single diamond. but. Hey ho is what it is, and we're being ushered to the next section. The branch of this tunnel soon joins up with the other one again, and you are once more following quite a wide passageway. But just as wide is a dark crater you suddenly encounter in the tunnel floor. 
It stretches from one side of the tunnel to the other, and you're not sure how you're going to cross it. You have three options. Oh, spoiling us. First, you can descend into the crater, hoping that it is not as deep as it looks. Second, you can try and make your way out round the edge by hanging onto the rocks that jut out from the tunnel wall. Or third, you can attempt to leap right across it. All are perilous, but you're going to have to decide on one course of action. What will it be? So, uh, again, Foresight will uh, will make this completely trivial, but I don't have Foresight. Uh, I'm going to descend into the crater, I think. Seems like hedging my bets. I feel like if I go around, I could fall in. If I jump, I will definitely fall in. I feel like you could use the um, the special dice uh, for other things than simply combat. Because you've got like a D2 and a D3, effectively. Uh, so you could ask, ask the player to, to roll either the hero dice or the monster dice and give a range of options depending on what happens. That would have added a little bit of depth quite easily without requiring any more peripherals, I think. You cautiously climb into the crater, slowly making your way down its steeply sloping side. Fortunately, there are enough ledges and crevices there to provide a series of hand and footholds. Do you wonder how long this will continue? Right to the very depths of the crater? Quite soon, though, your foot suddenly touches the bottom. So, yes right to the very depth of the crater. Just, they're not very depth. They're slightly depth. You hurry the few paces to the other side of the crater and start to scramble up towards the top again. You're about two-thirds of the way there, however, when you suddenly feel a searing pain in your hand. Something has bitten you. A poisonous grub of some sort living in the rock's cracks. Its poison works quickly your arm soon starts to feel very weak. You only hope that the poison is not deadly and that you can hold out until you reach the top of the crater. If you fell now from this height, you probably wouldn't survive. Deduct one from your strength rating. Strength rating now down to two once more. Nice bit of tension though. I don't object to punting you to the next section if you're going to make use of it as a dramatic device. I've spoken about that before. Fortunately, your arm does hold out long enough for you to reach the top of the crater. And also, fortunately, the poison wasn't deadly. Although your arm still feels drained of strength, at least the numbness hasn't spread to the rest of your body. You can proceed with your quest. As you continue beyond the crater, the tunnel grows ever wider. It's now more like a small cavern than a tunnel. Fortunately, the lamps are placed more frequently here and so your way ahead is not quite as uncertain as it might have been. But there are still many more pockets of darkness than light, and it is in one of these dark areas that you suddenly catch sight of a huge glinting diamond in the rock face. But as you move nearer, however, you see that there is also a monster with two heads. Both of the mouths hiss at you with snake-like tongues, each dripping a luminous venom. By now you've worked out that these monster guardians never desert the diamonds that they're protecting. Indeed, it seems that they are unable to move more than a couple of paces from them. So by keeping to the other side of the tunnel, you're sure you could happily avoid this fiend. But do you really want to? For the diamond glinting in the rock is the largest you've seen yet. There is a picture of the 
faces coming out of the darkness again great use of negative space really really nice sharp fanged heads with reptilian sort of eyes yeah very nice indeed very evocative uh, so we can choose to fight or avoid it i like the detail that they are just there to guard the diamonds that does make some of the other encounters earlier make more sense uh, obviously i'm going to fight it because i still haven't found a single diamond so uh, let's see how that goes so the two-headed monster is slain by two wounds oh finally a fight that statistically speaking we should be able to win so i'm gonna roll some dice i continue on without any diamonds i managed to land one wound on the creature but the creature then immediately bit me and i don't like being bitten so i'm running away the tunnel seems to go on and on penetrating deeper and deeper into the bowels of the mountain tiredness begins to overcome you so you sit on a rock to rest for a few minutes as you are sitting there resting to recover your strength a young woman appears in front of you dressed in a long white gown I am the guardian spirit of the mine, she tells you softly. The next section of this tunnel becomes very treacherous, so you must follow me for the safest route. As she starts to beckon you with a slim, pale finger, however, something quite incredible starts to happen to her. Something that makes you gape in shock. Her form has separated into three. There are now three gowned figures standing there, all identical except for the colour of their gowns. In the middle is the still white-gowned spirit, but to her left is a duplicate in green, and to her right a duplicate in yellow. I wonder how we're going to solve this puzzle. Apart from this colour, these vestments are exactly the same, even to the identical folds and creases. And they all have the same strange symbol embroidered at the centre. See, this was potentially an interesting encounter where she could talk to you and maybe give you some kind of hint about whether she was a goodie or a baddie. But no, no, we're back to random colour symbols. I look the same because I am the same. The three forms all speak together. Although only one of me now embodies the good spirit. The other two are evil. It is a curse, the sorcerer Murgle, put on me to reduce the assistance I can give. You bewilderingly turn from one to the other as they all start to beckon you again, each insisting that she is the one you should trust. For some reason, your gaze again returns to the strange symbol in the centre of their gowns. So, uh, the symbol means... Choose yellow! I'd like to also point out that the symbols in the Book of Cipher we've encountered so far are literally the first and the second symbol. So, uh, off we go with the yellowy lady. As you follow the yellow-gowned spirit, the other two suddenly start to snarl and scream after you. Don't be troubled by them, the spirit tells you calmly as she leads you through the very centre of the cavern. They are thus because you chose correctly. But their hatred will soon turn in on itself and destroy them. Indeed, that seems to be happening because the screams have now turned to terrified howls. You keep your eyes from glancing back as the howls become more and more intense, ending suddenly in sobs. 
and silence. Yes, they have gone, the spirit ahead tells you. And now that I have guided you safely through this treacherous part of the tunnel, I must go to protect any others that might come this way. To be fair, she's got to go to protect a third of anyone else who comes this way, given that I have presumably the only book of ciphers. At that, she slowly fades away into the darkness. The tunnel seems to grow ever larger as you progress. It must now be a good 15 metres high. As you are looking up at the shadowy roof, you suddenly notice a small cave just below it, recessed into the top of the tunnel wall. If it was just the cave there, you probably wouldn't have given it a second thought. You have encountered a fair number of these high-up recesses already. But what is intriguing is that there are three ropes dangling from the hole. It seems that this particular cave is actually used in some way. Could it be a storage place for some of the mined diamonds? You immediately approach the three ropes, and you can climb one of them should you wish. So left, right, centre, or we can choose not to. <gasps> a four-way choice. Oh, and it's an actual choice. Like there's no magic spell or cipher that renders this functionally meaningless. So left, centre, or right. Well, left steered us badly wrong last time, but I've got a good feeling about this time. So we're going to keep on keeping on left. Uh, sooner or later, left will turn out to be awesome. I just know it. As you climb the rope on the left, you hear a light tinkling above you. It's only when you've nearly reached the top that you suddenly realise that the tinkling is caused by your movement up the rope. There must be a small bell attached to the rope. That bell can only have one purpose, to give warning that the rope is being used. Greatly alarmed by this, you quickly start to descend again, but it's too late. Someone in the cave suddenly cuts the rope above you, and you go crashing to the hard ground below. Deduct one from your strength rating. Well, my strength rating is currently one. That gives me a strength rating of zero, and brings an end to this adventure. So, zero treasures obtained, because... I couldn't fight my way out of a wet paper bag. And also, I think the fights are just basically really hard. Unless the dice are vastly more heavily weighted in the hero's favour than I'm giving credit for. It could be it could be that there's only one uh, hero face on the hero dice. Kind of doubt it. My instinct for terrible design decisions suggests that it's probably just an even distribution but anyway the most ignominious failure that we've had for some considerable time on this podcast and it's a podcast rife with ignominious failure so uh, i hope you've enjoyed that little playthrough i'm definitely not invoking the sausage finger bookmark rule for this i will instead go away and play through on my own time and see how I feel about it after that. At the moment, I want to say I'm feeling pretty conflicted. But who knows, maybe the second half of the adventure is just amazing. I'll speak to you in a few seconds. Tatty bye. Zero Treasures Found is a poor showing, even for me. If I ever need a reminder to stay humble then I can just go back and listen to episodes of this podcast 
the playthrough portion of which I might charitably call a catalogue of abject failure. Having said that, I didn't mind too much because despite the shortcomings of this book, I wound up having a surprisingly nice time with it. It's not a book whose design I can defend on intellectual grounds particularly well, but there was something about it that just tickled me more than I was expecting, and it's obviously a very subjective thing, charisma, but I did find this book weirdly charismatic. There is some stuff I can defend. There's some genuinely good choices in there, I do very much like having a single stat which is slowly drained in various ways. The lack of instant death sections makes a very nice change of pace and I think there's something pleasing about only having to track your strength rating and the amount of treasure you've found. It's especially nice given the tendency of authors to multiply stats beyond what the narrative actually needs. There's not a lot of really parsimonious design in the gamebook space so when you come across it that's actually quite pleasant. We must never forget the absurdity of Fire Asterix Wolf which had a profusion of stats and weird calculations and made most of them completely irrelevant. So this is a good example of minimal design work functioning as intended. The author does appear to have a decent grasp of how his own book works which sounds like it ought to be a very low bar, but it is one that we've seen numerous authors entirely fail to clear. And if we're thinking about less capable gamebook authors, obviously J.H. Brennan is the deranged god-emperor of surreally bad book design, but there's also in here a hint of the design philosophy of Luke Sharp, whose Chasms of Malice is still a kind of open wound somewhere at the back of my psyche. This is a simplistically put together piece of work, like the ten ciphers that you get are all different ways of saying, choose this one, and there's a surprising number of times that you have to choose between a selection of different ghosts, and lots of times when someone will force you to choose between different coloured items. So you've got that sense of relying on a handful of tricks that blighted chasms of malice. I found it less irritating here, which I think comes down to the descriptions being better and giving each repeater the same trick, at least the veneer of novelty. It also feels a lot less random and boneheaded than chasms of malice, which was just all over the place and very dull at the same time. I could broadly remember where I went wrong in previous runs and I could make different decisions and while the design might be simple it all just works with the exception of combat which I'll come back to in a bit. The underlying structure might be basic but there's enough wit and imagination supporting those basic tropes that I didn't find it obnoxious. Could it have been better? For sure it could have been a lot better. But for what it is, it functions well enough and the broadly linear structure makes exploring the tunnels feel fairly easy. I also like that, my actual playthrough aside, it's not particularly hard to get diamonds. Getting to 8, which is the maximum, that does seem to be a bit of a challenge. But I was able to get to 7 fairly quickly once I understood how the monster encounters and the combat system were actually supposed to work. 
I love a scoring system in a game book, and this one feels neatly balanced to heap rewards on younger players while ensuring that a perfect score is still a serious accomplishment. And I think that the design issues with this book will have been much less of a problem for younger readers. Having four items to find, each with a different gimmick to help with different encounters, that simple focus is in its own way quite clever design. Kids usually have a rather higher tolerance for repetition than jaded 40-something-year-olds. I mean, I say that, but I have watched every season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Vampire Vampire about 12 times, so in some ways my own tolerance for repetition is pretty high. I also like quite a lot of doom metal and uh, will quite happily sit there listening to the same crushing riff for like 14 and a half minutes. But there's a couple of really interesting twists hidden in the broadly remedial design philosophy. So if you choose to fight the first monster the moment you come across it, you get a really tough fight. But it's optional. You can decide to run away from that monster, which then presents you with a second monster that you could fight. And if you run away from that one, you're presented with a third monster you can fight. And the third monster is by far the easiest of the three to kill, and it still nets you a diamond. You can't fight all three monsters, you have to pick one, but pick the right one and you get a very, very easy fight. This use of strategic fleeing is tremendous, and it did give me a nice aha moment when I figured out how it was working. It's used repeatedly, and sometimes you want to fight the last monster, sometimes you want to fight the first monster, and that gives a range of possibilities which I quite like. It's actually more of a riff on the combat system than it is on the monsters themselves, and it's something I feel like you could maybe use a version of really successfully in a more complicated game book by perhaps having the player decide on one of two to three approaches to a fight and amending the combat stats appropriately based on the decisions that they've made. Again, this is a simple, simple system that is reused ad nauseam, but there is just a nice pleasure in guessing right and being faced with a weaker creature. I also like that it is actually a system, but it's one that doesn't need to have its rules explained. It's a system that emerges from play naturally, and that's always a good thing. It's also nice that literally all of the monsters are optional. If you're low on strength, you can simply opt to bypass the chances of a diamond and run away from all of the monsters. And that adds another layer of strategy to beating the book. As you get into the later stages, if your strength is low, you do want the diamonds because you need six to get a complete victory. But you also want to get to the final paragraph as well. I also was impressed by the vast majority of the monsters being visually distinctive. There are some off-the-peg monsters like goblins and cyclops and what have you, but the vast majority are visually unique and that adds to that sense of fun. There's nothing worse than a boring series of orcs and trolls with nothing to differentiate them, so I appreciated that little bit of effort Thraves went to to keep things varied. 
Now, the actual mechanics of the combat don't feel particularly good, which is a shame because rolling a monster dice and a hero dice to fight is actually a nice little minigame on paper. I did eventually manage to track down a source that indicated that the monster dice has two swords and four faces, while the hero dice has one face, two swords and three shields, which skews things much, much more strongly in favour of the hero than even my hacked version of the rules. I found the dice on a online dice database, which is just a marvellous, marvellous thing. Now, these dice change the probabilities considerably. Uh, so the hero is wounding the monster two times in nine, and the monster's wounding the hero one time in 18. And that really does make the fights much more manageable, although it still makes them very long. The player has an advantage up until you get to more than four wounds, by my reckoning. It does mean that to kill a monster with four wounds, you would expect, on average, to have to roll the dice 18 times in total, and then a further 4.5 dice rolls for each additional wound. Something with eight wounds is going to require an average of 36 combat rounds to win, which is frankly insane. Obviously, you probably wouldn't win, because you'd expect the monster to hit you twice in that time. But low frequencies, you know, maybe you might get away with it. Of course, most of the time, assuming you're picking the right monster, you should be fighting something with two wounds. And that's very much a fight you're going to expect to win. And although the fights do feel clunky, and the special dice creates a limited design space to differentiate combat encounters in and of themselves, I do think there were some options available to make them feel a bit more unique allowing the player to re-roll the hero dice in certain fights, requiring the monster to score two hits before winning, having something interesting happen if you get a null result, say you both roll swords or you both roll faces, all of these things would have added a modicum of depth to the combat, and as it is, it feels very grindy and quite uninspiring. I don't think this would have mattered a jot to me as a child, though, I played a lot of Hero Quest, the uh, MB Games dungeon crawling adventure board game as a boy, and I absolutely loved rolling dice with special symbols on them, which Hero Quest had in spades. And I'll be honest, I still do quite like rolling dice with special symbols on them. Like Blood Bowl, there's a game I absolutely love, and that's got special dice. One thing that the book definitely misses out on, I did allude to this during the playthrough, is the opportunity to use the special dice to resolve things other than combat. Between the two dice you've got a nice basic range of probabilities to play with. If you ask the player to make a roll looking to get a specific symbol on one or other of the dice, you could even combine them to add more possibilities. But even just making a little bit of use of one of the dice would give you a great mechanical opportunity. You've essentially got a simple test your luck mechanic, but with the ability to adjust the difficulty, which is really neat, and it's a shame that wasn't explored because it would have been a lot of fun. Now, there is an issue with losing things from the set, but taken in and of itself, the externalisation of everything does actually feel quite nice in play. It makes the product feel like a premium one. I was surprised by how good it felt not to have to write things down. And the peripherals are nicely made. They're quite nice to look at. I don't think they were necessary. I do think they probably create more problems than they actually solve. But 
As gimmicks go, this was one of the better ones. Some of the hints on the two clue cards could have been hints that needed a little thought rather than simply do this. But again, that's probably less of an issue for younger readers for whom this book is clearly intended. Once you've got all four of the items, the book does feel less exciting because you know there's nothing else to find that will help you. And this is a bit of a Hobson's choice because if you want the player to feel like the items are properly useful, you want to get them reasonably early doors. But if you do that, the latter stages, they don't have any real sense of escalation. There's no good answer to that, except to maybe have a couple of single function items that you'd have to write down on a bit of paper, but that would break the purity of the game design, so that doesn't feel ideal either. Obviously, the repetitive nature of the choices is an issue. There's four items, but the two ciphers are basically identical in terms of what information they spit out. One of them is just a symbol cipher, and one of them is a letter cipher. Uh, they're both just telling you to eat the blue one or whatever. Uh, the two spells are a bit better, particularly the trance spell is kind of cool because you can only use the trance spell on people. So there's a, a stronger differentiation there, but ultimately they are broadly the same in terms of how they work in the game. And there's altogether too much colour-based choice. Weighed against that, there is a booby-trapped canary at one point, which might be the best thing I've ever seen in a dungeon. And a really, really cool mind-based little detail. I pointed out that there's 330 numbered sections, but considerably, considerably less actual decisions. And I think that's probably good overall, because if there were more decisions to be made, the repetition that's already a little bit intrusive would become just unbearable. And you would end up having so many choose a colour, choose a direction, choose a ghost, decisions to make, it would just feel like Groundhog Day. Even though there's a lot of punting you from one paragraph directly to the next, I do think Thraves makes good use of the section breaks to either create drama or to show the passage of time, so they're not entirely random. It usually winds me up when there's quite so many sections between meaningful choices, but once I realised that this was just going to be the way of things, I actually just felt a lot more laid back. And for some reason it felt less irritating to me to jump about than it did to deal with the giant wadges of text uh, that we encountered in the first Endless Quest book from TSR that we covered. At a higher level, I do think the basic setup is really strong. And with a bit more thought put into the execution, it could have been wonderful. It's a simple mission. It makes a modicum of sense, I'll say, even if the complete collapse of the kingdom's economy seems pretty rapid and no one seems to have thought to deploy an army early doors to take the mines back. That, to me, makes more sense than sending a single mercenary once the entire country has fallen apart at the seams. But, you know what, I'll suspend my disbelief. There's Many a good role-playing scenario that started from the premise of a functional space being overrun by monsters. And that side of it I really like. I can complain about the technical execution, but it's another thing I would have enjoyed as a child, so it's getting a pass from me. The minds themselves do feel a bit underwritten and kind of a bit overwritten at the same time. 
There's a pleasingly surreal quality to a lot of the encounters. I like a weird dungeon encounter, but often it feels less like you're in a mine and more in some random and unrealistically spacious caves. And that's a missed opportunity. If I were to write a dungeon in a mine, the first thing I'd do would be to write a list of cool stuff that can happen in mines and cool things you can find in mines. I'd have a look at some reference photos probably and I'd certainly be thinking about films that have mine sections in them. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is an obvious choice and even sci-fi movies like Total Recall where mining is a background element uh, can provide some inspiration. Obviously some bits I just straight up nick other things, I think I'd probably try and fantasy up a bit. There's a little bit of that here, see the exploding canary, but not nearly enough. Um, you do meet some miners and some ghosts of miners. I mean, the ghost of a miner is an obvious inclusion. Mines are dangerous places at the best of times. But I do feel as though there's a lot of material culture associated with mining that could have been included and really upped the sense of verisimilitude of it it should definitely have been a lot more claustrophobic than it actually is uh, you also missed a great chance to do a bunch of wacky prospector stuff in the village by the mine or equally if you wanted something a bit more british you could borrow from the great mining heritage of the uk there's a long proud history of mining in this country and miners, particularly in the 20th century, were, were hard, proud men who saw a genuine heroism in what they did, and, and rightly so. On the positives, there is a nice confrontation with the evil wizard Murgle at the tail end of the adventure, so you do get a sense of a climax. I mean, he's still going to make you select a bunch of different coloured things, so it's not exactly surprising, but it does give you the sense that you're reaching the end before you actually reach the end and that's always nice. There's a few points where the text misses some obvious action that the player could take. You don't ever seem to think it would be a good idea to grab a pickaxe despite diamonds often being quite seriously embedded in the walls of the cave. I mean it's not a big deal but if you want to constrain your player in some way you need to provide a rationale and even a spurious one will do. The monsters not being able to follow you due to magic and needing to guard the diamonds, that's a very silly rationale, but I'll accept it because it is at least a rationale and it does make a kind of crazy, backwards, not quite sense. Lastly, I do want to shout out the interior art as generally very strong. I'm not 100% sure I like Terry Oak's style, but I do like the way he puts together an image. Monsters loom out of the darkness in a very eerie way, often with only a few elements visible. And it feels really appropriate to the setting, and he builds on Thrave's spare but functional descriptions to good effect. And art really does make a game book much more enjoyable. I'm kind of hoping one day I can hire some kind of artist to uh, work on one of mine so that uh, I can really provide that authentic game book experience. In summary, this is an odd one overall. I suspect it landed a lot better for its target audience of youngsters than for an adult, but I think there was 
the potential for a book here which could have landed for both with a bit more care and attention. I'd be interested in playing some of the licensed books from Hodder and Snowton to see whether Thraves does a better job when the material strongly suggests plot points and the kind of adventure in general that you're going to have. I did enjoy it though. I did enjoy Tunnels of Fear probably more than it actually deserves but there's a few neat ideas buried amongst the basic design choices and although I could take issue and further issue with a bunch of small things I just didn't find it dull. It's broadly inessential but it does have a few sparks of inspiration that make it worth examining and I came away from it determined to nick a few ideas and any book that gets me thinking about design and how I would do things and what I would do with the tools provided that's just a nice thing that's that's got something going in my brain and I hugely appreciate that so that's all for this bonus episode I do hope you'll join me in a couple of weeks I hope for Slaves of the Abyss possibly the most metal album title we've come across thus far in the fighting fantasy series I'll also be doing some work on a few new patron rewards including my game about Saturday morning cartoon shows and uh, a two-player role-playing game about crazed religious zealots seeking martyrdom in a fantasy world. If you want to get in touch with me, then you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.